Hey, listeners, friends and friends to be. This is Marcia Epstein, and this is Talk With Me. And this is December, December 11th, 2017, actually, when we are recording. And here I am in Lawrence, Kansas, where I think it's going to be about 60 degrees today. So it's very difficult to keep track of time because, you know, there really is global warming. Hey, anyway, I am always thrilled to get to do shows with people for the first time because I'm all about that discovery thing. I think about, I have to say, I think about John Yamras, who is this wonderful and prolific poet in uh, Pennsylvania, who just, in fact, has a memoir now that's just come out, Memory Lane through Epic Rights Press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, because I'm going to tell you, buy the books, buy everybody's, not everybody's, buy some books instead of coffee, you know. Um, anyway, John, John said to me one day, I love doing your show. I love listening to your show because you're so well prepared. And I said, uh-oh, John, you know what? It's not that I'm so well prepared, it's that I am really interested. That's what you hear. And that's what I hope happens for listeners, that you enjoy the unfolding both of conversation and with the writer guests getting to hear their words, you know, that it's a really special treat. Um, and so today, my guest, like many of our guests, is coming to us uh, with a connection that relates to technology. And I started thinking about not only the technology, which is of course a gift, but also the people that actually would be involved with this particular link. And I think I have to go back to, as I often do, um, how many degrees of separation from Wolfgang Karstens of Epic Rights Press. And the reason I'm calling to Wolfgang is that Wolfgang introduced me to Brenton Booth, who's a poet, a wonderful person in Australia. And Brenton and I did a show not too long ago. And Brenton and I were talking before and after the show and talking about other people that might be really great guests. And he, and he said one of his favorite poets is this guy named J.J. Campbell. And he thought if I could get J.J. to do a show with me, that would be really great. And so it turned out that J.J. was open to doing the show. Um, and like like a lot of guests, they they start out saying, I you know I don't know I'm not I'm I'm not really a great talker I'm not sure I can do this I'm a little nervous or I'm a lot nervous anyway JJ and I had a great hour it was great conversation great poetry it was really cool to do it and then you know some little maybe a few weeks later I can't remember in my Twitter feed I see this this guy has retweeted um, the the podcast because JJ is going to be a reader at a series that this person sponsors our hosts. And so this is how Wolfgang Karsten, Degrees of Separation, get me to today's guest, who is Johnny Longfellow. Hey, Johnny, welcome to Talk With Me. Hi, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm <laughs> glad to do that. And I love that you encourage people to listen to JJ in terms of listening to the podcast as well as coming to your reading. I thought, you know, that was that was really cool. That was, to me, high praise that, that you thought, hey, people might listen to this and, and get something out of it and want to come to my reading series because that's what we want. We want people at those readings and buying those books. <laughs> so oh, I was tell just us say, a little bit it, about you. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a Massachusetts-based yeah. uh, poet and editor. I edit a small press site named uh, Midnight Lane Boutique, which you can easily Google online. And um, you know, that's about it. I, I used to be, I worked for 25 years as a uh, 
healthcare worker, and I left the field, and um, now I clean houses. Okay, and you mentioned, you know, when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that you also do this uh, mentoring thing, or used to, I'm not sure, but you did it for a long time with students. Yeah, for the past 20 years, um, I've been involved. I used to live up in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is a community up the north shore of Massachusetts near the New Hampshire border. And um, I was introduced to one of the English teachers there, Debbie Zabo, and she invited me 20 years back when the program started. It's called Poetry Soup. And what it involves, it's, it's, it's called a mentoring program, which makes it sound like it's in a way more than it is. What it is is each year poets are invited to come and do a reading and, um, and then after the reading to the students to respond to questions. And it's, mm-hmm. done, off, it's done off campus um, after hours. It's an extracurricular program, which um, does very well. A lot of students show up, generally speaking, just depending on weather. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very important thing for not only students, but people in general to have ways to express themselves. And I think about with younger people, man, the earlier people can know, it's it's good to get this stuff out, whether it's writing that just I'm going to have or writing I'm going to share. But, but to have that be another tool for the expression of emotion and thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, and, and have that be a, a safe and healthy and powerful one. I, I think that is so cool. And the, the number of poets I've met who do some kind of um, writing program, whether it's, you know, in schools, I, I talked to Will Staple, um, who's in, um, I don't think he's, he's in Nevada, California, I forget where Will is. Anyway, he's been writing forever. And he did this Poets in School program um, for the longest time, and I thought, how cool is that? And I have friends who are doing things in local, like juvenile detention and jails and prisons. And um, one of our, uh, one of the poets we we mutually uh, admire, Rob Plath, who's in Long Island, New York, is now a mentor for a, a program called uh, Pen, which is a prison writing program where um, prisoners and writers exchange. Um, writing, you know, so they, they get some growth, the prisoners get that opportunity to, to work on their writing, which is so powerful oh, when you think about that environment. Like, so all these cool things. So I loved it when I saw, oh man, this, this guy did stuff to help kids know how to use their words. That's amazing and wonderful. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and when you bring up about expression too, I, sh- I, I neglected to add that, you know, the students, actually the way that the program is run is it it does open with an open reading. So the students get an opportunity to read their work. It's always a uh-huh. little furtive. It's always a little furtive at first, you know, they're trying to get somebody to be the first person to read yes. the like of that. But eventually it gets rolling. And um, as one student reads and then another student, the other ones start to, I think, gain their confidence hearing hearing their peers read. And yeah. so, yeah, and so, you know, we go through that period of it, and then, then I'll usually do, you know, what is a, you know, a small feature. It's usually around 20 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. That's what they provide for the, uh, for the uh, mentors, as they're called, mm-hmm. and then the Q&A period afterwards. Mm-hmm. And the, the other added thing about it is, is that they request um, of the poets that they provide one poem or two. They can be previously published, and that gets printed in their print journal called Poetry Soup. 
same uh-huh. with the program, along with the students. So it brings together um, poets, in a lot of cases, who are far, far more established than me um, in their various um, schools or what have you of poetry um, with, with, with the students' work. So that's, that's the other nice thing about the program. Yeah, well, I can certainly appreciate diversity of poets. You know, I don't, I, I'm not one who says, well, just because you've been writing longer, that I'm going to like your work better. <laughs> yeah, but, and what, uh, yeah. What I meant by the di- diversity of poets is is that there's uh, there's a healthy amount of formal verse poets that read there. So poets mm-hmm. who write in rhyme and meter, um, free verse poets, and Debbie also has made a really good effort to get performance poets from down the Boston, Cambridge area to come up. So there's a really good mix for the students. So they're not getting exposed to just one particular school of poetry or one particular thought. And, you know, and then there's also just diversity just on levels of, you know, gender, race and and all of that. So, yeah, it's it's a good program. She's been running it for well over 20 years. I've been the second longest mentor. Rena Espeyat, who's who's actually when we talk about mentors, she's my mentor. Mm-hmm. She she's the longest running um, mentor at the program. She's been she's been doing it for a year or two longer than myself. And um so you know that's 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 about all I can say on that right now. That's cool. That's very cool. You know, and 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 to me, I just I want to say one more thing about that because I I think about my own exposure to poetry, and I think about some of the as I will say adults who I've known who's like whose reaction is poetry is like you must sit in a chair with your lamp and your cup of tea and focus on the poetry. That's what poetry means to me and it's like it's because we had crappy teachers (laughs) yeah who said it had to be this thing this one way and there was a right way and a wrong way and so then we get kind of intimidated and turned off and so so it's beautiful that that with poetry soup that there's that intentional bringing in of different types of poetry which to me helps create that opportunity and inspiration for somebody to try their own poetry for their students. So that's a really very cool thing. Well, I mean, so, historically speaking, something you're bringing up, uh, you know, about uh-huh. people who talk about, like, reading it and having to get really focused and the like of that, I understand uh-huh. where that comes from because of, I, I would say because of, you know, the modernist movement and, you know, the the difficulty of that poetry, that you got to know the footnotes and the like of that. But uh-huh. historically speaking, Poetry has been an oral art that was meant to bring people together into a kind of ceremonial or ritual space with one another. So uh-huh. in that sense, that's, you know, I mean, in modern times we use, you know, we use poetry readings to bring ourselves together and to create that that ritual space. And, and you know, I view Poetry Super, any kind of program as, you know, it's, it's, it's a social thing it's not merely about literature itself mm-hmm. well and to me it's social both in the connection bringing people together way in in which is very important and okay. also in the connection around ideas around experiences you know yeah. i can i can 
go to a reading and be surprised by something that is in somebody's work that gets me thinking about something differently than I had before. And I can right. also hear something that so resonates with my experience mm -hmm. that it's like, oh, wow, this person knows what that hard thing was like too and has expressed it very publicly and openly. And that's a huge relief for me that somebody else gets this, you know? Yeah, excellent. So, I mean, on the one hand, you're bringing up, yeah. you know, the idea that, you know, our, our understanding of the world, of ourselves, and our relationships to others can be expanded. And yet at the same time, we can also have these moments where we connect directly with the person who's um, presenting us the work. So, yeah, I completely mm -hmm. agree. Yeah, yeah. So I I interrupted with by asking you for an introduction, um, and I, I want to ask you to tell us about some of the, you know, wherever you want to start, some of the projects that you have related to poetry, because I'm aware, you know, that, again, what brought you to my attention was you were um, promoting a poetry event that J.J. Campbell was going to be one of the readers at. So that's how we connected on Twitter. Um, mm. You have your websites and publications. You have your own work. So launch into one of that. Just tell us a little bit about poetic stuff that you're doing. Well, I started um, my, my main website. I have two journals um, that I run, but one is on hiatus. And the one that's on hiatus is Bad Acid Laboratories, and I just can't afford to fund that right now. Um, that brought together visual artists with poets, and because of the demands that I was putting on the visual artists, they were basically like co-editors. I was paying them around $100, give or take, for each issue that I was putting out. Just mm -hmm. can't afford that right now. Mm -hmm. So that, that journal's on hiatus. And that returned me back to um, Midnight Lane Boutique, which I publish on a rolling basis. And the boutique has always been kind of my first love. I, I just, I really love that site. I've worked hard over the years to create a vibe and to design it. The way that it looks now is not the way it looked when I first started it back in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I would add that when I started it back in 2014, I had um, left the healthcare field. There were I, I I can't go into great detail about this because it's just so complex. But Obamacare had a number of things attached to it vis-a-vis -vis special interests, which um, changed regulations. And one of those regulations had to do with influenza vaccination. And as it turned out, I was allergic to um, the vaccine. So um, I wasn't able to get the shot and was being required to wear a mask for the full flu season while I was working, which greatly hindered the social aspects of working with the people whom I was caring for. Uh -huh. So I ended up leaving the field. It's, a, it's, it's something that's been going on around the country, this mandatory masking. Um, and when I left the field, the 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 thing that I faced at that point was was that I had been, you know, a certified nurse's aide for 25 years. 
And when you do something for 25 years, it becomes a big part of your identity. Mm-hmm. And um, so leaving the field, I was kind of floundering as to, you know, finding, like, what am I going to do? This is what I've mm-hmm. done since mm-hmm. I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, beyond, you know, what am I going to do for money, there's also just this whole, like, geez, you know, you know, I, you know, my identity and just, you know, yeah. something altruistic for other people. Because even though I was being paid, I had grown into that job over the years and had become, you know, good at it. And, and I loved it. You know, I miss it even now. Um, so that's when I, you know, I had been writing poetry for years, but I had never been on the other side. And that was really what sparked me to start a site was, you know, maybe this was where I could filter that, you know, desire to do things for other people, um, you know, through publishing. And I was inspired by a friend of mine who had passed away um, back in around 1997, um, Joe Dunn, who was a... uh, publisher way back in the day, um, who was a part of the mimeograph revolution out in the San Francisco uh-huh. um, area. So, you know, he, he was in on the ground floor of the small uh-huh. press. He ran a small press called the White Rabbit Press. And, um, you know, and I had often, you know, thought about him in the wake of his passing. Uh-huh. That, um, you know, his inspiration to me. That what I, what I always admired about Joe was, I mean, Joe was... Um, an organizer of poetry readings. He was an actor, too. He didn't write anymore when he'd gotten older, and he wasn't publishing anymore. But especially with the poetry readings, I just saw this guy who was like a great empresario. He was really good at bringing talent together, and he was also skilled at kind of, you know, organizing, bringing the talent together, but also slipping back into the background to allow others to shine. Mm -hmm. So... You know, so Midnight Lane Boutique is actually dedicated to him. Ah, that's on, wonderful. Yeah, on the Come Hither page, which is um, which is the About page, um, yeah, I have a small dedication to him down the bottom. Oh. So, what kinds of things are happening on at Midnight Lane Boutique these days? Well, I'm feeling uh, my. My definition of success is not is not like some high grand definition. Mm-hmm. So I um, this this was kind of exciting for me. This fall I I publish weekly. So while I respond to poets fairly quickly, you know, like within a within a week to two weeks, I have a short turnover time where I let them know whether they're in or not. Um, because I publish weekly, I end up developing a backlog. And mm-hmm. I ended up developing a backlog of four months. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I can shut this down for two months. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I shut down the submissions for two months just to pare back the backlog so that people would not have to be waiting as long. Mm-hmm. And it was, that was the first time that that ever happened. And I actually felt like, wow, I'm actually like, this is actually fairly successful at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To have that much interest in being published on your site, that's great. Yeah, I was, yeah, and it's not that they come pouring in, but, you know, they, they come in waves, the submissions, is what seems to happen. I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. I'll have periods where things are rather quiet, and then all of a sudden I get, like, bombarded with them. So mm-hmm. I haven't quite figured that out yet. There's something sociological regarding now. <laughs> Interesting. So that's, that's a big part right now of, of your 
poetic work is is producing this weekly. I can't believe you're saying you do this weekly. That's a lot of work. <laughs> no, I, I, I publish one poet a week. So uh-huh. actually, yeah. it, so actually, it's not a lot of work. Okay. If, if I if I was publishing you know, every two to three days, and I would be on the thing all the time. And okay. yeah, and I can't really deal with that. And the thing is, is that with with poets, you know, I get works and the work that comes to me is in all different kinds of states of undress. Um, <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm you know, trying to be diplomatic. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so, and, and yet, you know, I'm not going to just kick back work because it needs a little bit of work in my opinion. So depending on the degree that's needed, I often will, you know, work with folks as an editor Mm -hmm. and, you know, let them know that these are changes that I'm interested in having done to accept. Here's some suggestions that you can take or leave, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. And in that way, I'm able to, you know, rather than just having a strict accept, reject kind of paradigm, I do what's called yellow lighting. And I let them know I'm I'm yellow lighting these poems. These are this is what I'm looking for Mm -hmm. in order to uh, render an acceptance. And um, so I'm able to increase the amount of people that I publish by doing that. I would say about 40% of the time, maybe 50% of the time I'm yellow lighting. And then the rest of the time, if it's not being um, just, if I'm not just giving up straight out rejection on the work, mm-hmm. poets are sending work that's not in any kind of state of undress. It's, you know, it's really good shape, ready to go. And, you know, that's always wonderful when that happens. But mm-hmm. I don't, I, not only do I not expect it, I don't, you know, like demand it of people. It's not, mm-hmm. it, it's not going to cause them not to get their work in. If there's, you know, some flaws in terms of spelling, grammar, typos, and maybe even, you know, some technical needs in terms of rhythm and the like of that, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. work on that with people if I see promise in, cool. uh, what's, in what's been sent to me. I want to prompt you right now to let us hear some of your poetry. Well, I'll start out light for you. I don't write, <laughs> I don't write a lot of confessional verse. Uh, okay. But in recent years, what little I've been writing, because I haven't been writing as much, I've just been more involved on the editing end, and that kind of feeds my need for a creative fix. Um, so I've been writing less, but what I have been writing has been confessional verse. Um, it seems like I've been going more in that direction, more of, you know, kind of dealing with my own inner landscape. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, um, when I left 25 years of working as a nurse's aide, I, you know, I took kind of a hit to my identity. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was having a really rough time. There was other things going on in my life personal stuff that was going on and concerns about a family member who was having health issues. So it was a, it was a snowballing kind of effect that was going on at that time. And a few months after I had finally gotten out of that situation, I had written this um, ballad. It's called Like Normal People Do. So I'll recite that piece to you. It goes, like, right. this. It goes like this. You ever want to Go someplace. I mean, just disappear. Leave everything, but leave no trace. Get your ass out of here. 
to somewhere could be far or near where you're no longer you, where you can dwell year after year like normal people do. You ever stare at your own face but still can't see it clear? You struggle hard just keeping pace while neighbors, they all steer. Between college, marriage, and career till somehow coasting through, they barbecue and drink cold beer like normal people do. You ever think they won that race but still fall prey to fear? Them dreams and rainbows they all chase. Once gone, won't reappear. Or do they just choke back each tear as one beer turns to two? Finding it's hell to persevere like normal people do. You see, you ain't the first to veer off course. That much is true. Or last to lose all you hold dear like normal people do. So that is inspired by huge changes in your life. And who am I now, man? <laughs> hmm? Well, I, I think about how so many of us have times when there are huge changes in our life that we didn't really ask for. And yeah. that's scrambling around for, so who am I and what is normal? And, you know, how do, sort of how do I live now, you know? Right, right. So, and, it's, and it's also, there's a theme in my poetry, but in this particular poem it became very personal, which is one about feeling stuck and there's this desire for wanderlust and escape. Uh -huh. And thankfully I came across this website which kind of stopped me from acting out on what is described in that poem. It's called... Um, <laughs> It's called Geographies of Missing People. It's out of Scotland, and they interview people who just decide to split. Uh-huh. You know, and, um, you know, in most of the cases, the people who decide to split their geographies, they don't go too far away from where they lived, and they kind of just wander around for a while till they're found, and then they have to come back and deal with, everybody else who's, you know, wondering, gee, what happened to you that you pulled that move? Hmm. You know? And that's where I kind of was at that point. I kind of felt like, you know, I got a little bit of money in the bank and I think I'm going to go out to New Mexico and go live on the Mesa. Mm -hmm. you know? and, I, and, I, and that sounds far-fetched, but that's where I was at, you know. Uh -huh. I just kind of wanted to split. I was just sick of, you know, you know the, the direction that my life had gone hmm. in and... Um, you know, and, and also, yes, a feeling that, you know, it, I didn't have complete and total agency yeah. over, over these changes that had occurred because, well, I didn't, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, as much as we like to tell ourselves, you know, oh, we're individuals and we have all this control and the like of that, it's not really like that. You know, our, yeah. our, our identities are a negotiation that we have with the rest of the world around us. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And to me, it's that mix. I, I'm at a state in my life, and I, I explain this, with, talk about this with people in my social work practice, that I think it's so important that we not try to assume a lot of it's either this or that. And in terms of control, that it's not accurate, it's not helpful to, to try to believe I have total control over this or I have no control over this. Right. And that I'm a, a huge advocate for doing the things that we are able to do that help with our own and other people's well-being and also acknowledge that things are going to happen that we had no ability to anticipate or to stop or to cause, you know, that, that there's always this mix. And because there is this mix, it is still worth doing those things that we do have control over that are, again, for our own and other people's well-being. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to get the word but out of my vocabulary, that it's not this, you know, except for but this, it's like this and this, and it's not mm -hmm. just this, it's it's this and this. Oh, so I'm, right. I'm, I'm really, I'm really conscious. My people, in particular people who I work with in my practice, are, they, they start laughing because I'm also big on yet, as opposed to, um, I don't do this. It might be, I, I don't do this yet, but you know, I, I'd like to in the future. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and bouncing off of something that you brought up. So you're you're a social worker, and I yeah. I have a degree in sociology, so we might have uh -huh. similar interests there. Uh -huh. And and I think that the the similarities between the two disciplines are is that you, you learn that you know life is a negotiation with others around you, yes. and also life is something to navigate through. So you have to figure out where you have agency and where you don't and then mm -hmm. try to, you know, do your best to take advantage of where the opportunities are and yeah. understand where the dead end roads are too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, and that's not always visible to us. Right. Sometimes we need the help of others like social workers, like yourself. <laughs> and healthcare workers. So I would in a complex bureaucratic world, social workers are, you know, are, are completely and utterly needed. Yeah, and artists are too, Johnny. That's the thing. I I think it's so important in so many different ways, including times when artists are pushing the boundaries and getting people to pay attention because they're pissed off at what they saw or heard through this artist of, you know, whether it's a comedian or a visual artist, a mural, whatever. We have a mural, we have a wonderful person in our community, Dave Onstein, who is a, an internationally known muralist and social activist, social justice activist, Dave's amazing. And one of the one of the murals that we have on a, on a very long standing um, like softball field stadium. It's so it's like this this concrete structure because it's like bleacher kind of thing. So that's outside uh, for this outside uh, softball park, whatever. It one there it has these people on it and and some somebody changed it after the election they changed one of the the signs that was on this piece of art and that it said dump trump 
And there are people that got furious in the community. There was this outrage and it's like, man, it's all art, you know? And indeed it got changed back to what it said before. And I can even explain, I can't remember right now, but it's like, it was wonderful that, you know, that somebody said in this way that was subtle in the sense of it, it looked like part of the original mural, you know? Right. And right. so, but it got people's attention. I was like, that's what art is supposed to do. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I, yeah. Yeah, one of the roles of art beyond, you know, trying to connect with people is also trying to provoke people, you know. Yeah. So absolutely. I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. So I want to hear more of your poetry. <laughs> well, what would you uh I you know, I do a variety of different poetry. Um a lot of it rooted in the ballad tradition. Um so, you know, I can do uh a uh, toast-inspired piece for you, if you would like. Um, I can See, when you say murder, toast, I, can I go... A, a murder ballad. <laughs> Toasts are an uh, African-American tradition uh, um, out of Louisiana. Um, toast? It's, yeah, it's a, ballad. it's a ballad okay. form, yes. Yeah, like a toast, like you would give, you know, at a wedding or something like that. The, okay. the same the same word or, you know, the toast that you get out of your toaster. Same that's same what I'm thinking. Word. See, that's exactly it's like, wow, this is interesting. Here's poetry for eating toast with. Here's poetry for, you know, celebrating. Uh, I want to hear a toast poem. <laughs> all right. Well, so this one, this one's um, one of the things that I do. You might have noticed that I uh, changed my voice. Johnny Longfellow is a pen name and also a persona. And when I originally started doing Johnny Longfellow, Johnny Longfellow was about um, about being white trash, basically, and about flaunting um, my trashiness and flaunting trashiness, which, artistically speaking, especially when I'm reading in front of people, elicits a really interesting variety of responses. I get this real looking-glass-self kind of um, experience with my audience where there will be some people who look a little concerned and have their arms crossed, and there'll be other people that are amused, other people that are completely digging it, you know, a wide variety of reactions. So mm -hmm. I'm not there um, necessarily to please everyone, which I think actually, even though there's a lot of pretense to writing under a pen name, and um, and performing under a persona, um, it has a way of making transparent that which is hidden in life. And so, you know, in life, we don't always know the people who like what we're doing and, or the people who do necessarily. They may put on false airs about it. But at a poetry reading, when I'm confronting people with my poetry and they're confronting me with their with their reactions, it becomes transparent. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, uh -huh. I, you know, it's kind of like uh, Harold Garfinkel's, you know, ethnomethodology, you know, that you, uh, if you want to understand social norms, you, you break them. So, you know, it's kind of like getting on an elevator and standing, staring at the wall rather than turning around to the door and mm -hmm. then, you know, gauging how everybody around you reacts to <laughs> You know, then you understand yeah. why everybody turns around and uh -huh. looks at the door. So anyway, so, um, all right, so this is called The Hollywood Saturnalia Shuffle, co-starring Carmen Hayes. And it goes like this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's a story about a fella. 
goes by Whitey, don't you know? Used to be all kinds of happy working as a CEO. But now, folks, I'm here to tell you things weren't nothing like they seemed with that mofo dress more snappy than you suckers ever dreamed. See old Whitey cruise the ghettos, copping crack and chasing coos with his limo slowly rolling down them darkened avenues where those ladies in stilettos stuck and snaking along their legs made them sidewalks they be strolling hot enough for frying eggs. Now once Whitey told his chauffeur, pull on over, would you Jeeves, while he dropped his tinted window down a smidgen, if you please. Peeking out just like some gopher on them thongs and boosty A's, till this sweet thang cast her shadow by the name of Carmen Hayes. There she stood, that queen of midnight, wearing nothing but a grin, and a creamy shamu's night is shimmering against her chocolate skin, like some candy store by moonlight luring in each drooling eye of a devil named a whitey with a tasteful whoopie pie. So our hero said, yo, honey, want to come and smoke some crack? While Poe Jeeves just sat there staring, watching as they talked and back. Till she slipped old Whitey's money with a giggle down her top, saying, sugar, you's be sharing all your goodies with a cop. Now, did I forget to mention once Poe Whitey had a spouse? Because you know he sure be bumming once she effed him for his house. While he spent ten months' detention picking up some brother's soap, all for Nazi wasted slumming, hustling hoes, and smoking dope. As for Jeeves, things turned out groovy, spending mornings by the pool, sexing white his ex old lady while the kids be off at school, saying, Yow, life's like a movie where the ending sure be good when your sister, slick and shady, works them streets of Hollywood. Well now, folks, so ends our story on that happy little note. Cause what words could I finagle topping that there brilliant quote? Except to close this allegory about old masses losing ways. Giving props to my boy Hegel, plus the starlet, Carmen Hayes. So tell a little bit about that, because you take a big risk, like you said, by going into persona. So, so tell me about that. What's that like for you? Um, it's exhilarating, actually. Okay. It's, yeah, it's exhilarating to be in front of a group of people who, if, if I was to suggest what social norms are at a poetry reading, um, you know, and, and really poetry readings do vary between whether you're going to a performance poet, poet's venue or a more traditional reading with the podium and the paper in front of you. But there's an expectation, I think, that poets are, are a choir that's going to be preached to um, or that there's going to be an actual um, full connection with the poet and his or her audience. So, you know, defying those expectations that, you know, some people are going to be presented with something that they're not going to be comfortable with or that, um, you know, they don't really know the history of. So they don't, they don't fully understand what it is they're being presented. Um, you know, creates for an interesting experience for myself and I think for everyone else in the audience as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few different sets that I do in terms of my poetry. So, you know, when I do the murder ballads and the toasts, that's when I'm really feeling like screwing with the audience, basically. And I don't, <laughs> I don't, yeah, and I don't do that too often. I don't, I don't do that particular set too often. Um, but when I do do it, it's, it's a really amazing feeling. Um, more often than not, I do my Springerville poems, which are a set of characters who um, interrelate to one another um, in various ways. So, and, and the toasting tradition, just to go back a little bit. So that, was in, that poem is actually inspired by a number of things, but the toasting tradition is, is um, of high importance. And the most famous... Um, poet who did toasts was the um, black exploitation actor and movie producer um, director Rudy Ray Moore, also known as Dolomite. And so you can hear him on the um, internet. You can find um, examples of his recitations. And those are, those are very body in uh, B-A-W-D-Y, very, very body poems, very ribald and um, nasty and, and fun to listen to if you want to listen to work that, uh, you know, causes uncomfortable laughter, I guess. <laughs> you, know? you know, a poet once said to me, I was, I, I had done a poetry reading um, at the Newburyport Literary Festival, and one of the poets with whom I read, we were, the, the reading was over and we were walking to one of the uh, hoity-toity bistros to get ourselves a overpriced sandwich and um he said to me as we were walking down the street this was the most amazing thing that anyone ever said to me he said you know when i hear you read your poetry i want to laugh but i know i shouldn't (laughs) okay (laughs) right well i mean you know it's you know we're in this social situation and it's like i want to laugh and you know maybe Uh if i was behind my computer you know, and nobody else was around, I could, like, fully enjoy what you're doing, but I'm in this group of people kind of thing, and so, like, I know I shouldn't, you know. That's how I took it, that, you know, there's there's social pressure to, you know, behave even when we're in an audience situation as compared to, uh, you know, being the person up on stage. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because I would hope in that environment that one of the poets there would feel free to react in whatever ways that they actually react, you know? Right, right, right. Well, I've never had a walkout, you know? And <laughs> Yeah, I've never had a walkout with my poetry. And also... You know, I I usually give people some prompts, that, you know, as to traditions that I'm working in and the like of that. So if I'm working in, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, ba- and the ballad tradition, going back to the 19th century and before, that was poetry that was not written by names that anyone remembers. You know, these are not canonized poets. And it was, you know, and, you know, for lack of a better word, it was the poetry of the common people. And... Their poetry were drinking songs and body songs, again, B-A-W-D-Y, and um, murder ballads, things about events that had occurred recently were things that they wrote about. So they weren't what was expected um, on a literary level. 
and that's where I really find my greatest inspiration is, you know, in, in those particular works by, you know, that great poet named Anonymous. <laughs> it, you're bringing up all kinds of things for me, and, and one is poetry that tells stories that, that I relate to and laugh about. I mean, I, there, and there are a lot of, of contemporary poets whose work I really like who do that. And, and I'm headed to a particular one. So Scott Silsby has this book called Muskrat Friday Dinner and it's stories and it's great. But I, I wanna introduce you. <laughs> I, want, I want you to, I'm trying to get Scott to do this anthology because he has this poem in this book. And I think it would be a, this amazing anthology, which is younger poets telling stories of older poets telling stories of older poets. And so, you know, it gets back to how you have been inspired by different people and your site is dedicated to somebody very special who was that mimeograph poet from the 60s or whatever, you know? Right. And, and so, you know, it's like, I, I think these stories need to be on the page. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a nice idea. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, when you talked about that, that I'm trying to, um, the name of this person who is so dear to you who has passed, I'm, tell me again his name, who you dedicate your site to. Oh, Joe Dunn. Joe Dunn, okay, so Joe Dunn is this old school poet from, you know, the early days of I'm gonna guess beat and other poetry and here he went, to the, he went to the Black Mountain School actually. He learned okay. under Charles Olson. So yeah. Okay. He was he was, okay. he was fully ingrained in the scene. He and Jack Spicer okay. uh, were who started the White Rabbit Press. Joe had okay. uh, gone to secretarial school specifically to learn how to use a mimeograph machine. <laughs> that was that was a Jack awesome. Spicer's urging. Yeah, that was a Jack Spicer's urging. <laughs> And so, you know, here in Lawrence, Kansas, they're, they're one of the poets who I very much admire is a man named Jim McCrary, who was a colleague of lots of people. Um, and those mimeograph days, there was stuff going on here in Lawrence, Kansas, with the underground poetry and other social issues. And, and then Burroughs, William S. Burroughs moved to Lawrence at some point. And, and Jim, as a young guy, worked with, and then for a long time, worked with Burroughs, you know? And so these great stories, man, you know? It's like, uh, we need to know this because it has influence on life in general as well as on poetry. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So what's a poem that you might read to the kids when you were doing those student readings? What kinds of work did you share with them? Oh, I do, I, I, I do all my work. Um, okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't hold back with them necessarily. It, it's partially the mood that I'm in. In some years, actually, I don't read Johnny Longfellow poetry at all. I read poetry written under my own name, and I, I only do like a few, and otherwise I do recitations of um, poets that I've set to, uh, poetry that I've set to memory. So mm -hmm. I do that some years, too, and I feel that that's important that... Um, you know, for poets, not just for audiences, but that, you know, we, one of the ways that you can learn about poetry and technique and rhythm and feeling poetry is to um, commit other poets' work to memory. 
Mm-hmm. So some years I actually do that. I'll, I'll do a set of um, poems by poets whose work I've um, I've memorized and learned to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's kind of a two-step process where first you just try to get the words down, and then second you try to get down the intonation and put your own personal spin on the piece. You know, yeah. and and you know get the get the feeling for it. Yeah. So I do that some years too. Mm-hmm. So I, I do any variety of work for the students. It just depends on where I'm at, you know. Okay. You know, leading leading up to the reading, I kind of start gauging like where am I at personally right now that I uh-huh. what I want to do. Cool. So, so they get a variety from you individually as well as from the set of poets overall the experience. That's cool. Sure. You wanna you wanna hear one of the Springersville poems? Sure. One of the characters? Okay. All right. So this is called The Ballad of Billy Bob. Once Billy Bob had been to war, he up and went right back. See, nothing mattered much no more once Billy Bob had been to war. He'd say times can't be like before his time spent in Iraq. Once Billy Bob had been to war, he up and went right back. Belinda loved old Billy Bob and said she'd be his wife. Before she met that a-hole Rob, Belinda loved old Billy Bob. But he was just a working slob who picked a soldier's life. Belinda loved old Billy Bob and said she'd be his wife. Each night he tried to fall asleep, old Billy Bob would dream. There'd be these Arabs herding sheep. Each night he tried to fall asleep. And wow, these babies all would weep, their mummies all would scream. Each night he tried to fall asleep, poor Billy Bob had dreamed. When Billy Bob was back again, he swore what's done is done. And one dark night, just after ten, when Billy Bob was back again, he burned Belinda's letters then. He cleaned and cocked his gun. When Billy Bob was back again, he swore what's done is done. As Billy Bob was laid to rest, the town folk called him brave. Belinda wore her Sunday best as Billy Bob was laid to rest. She stood there like their daughter, dressed in black beside his grave. As Billy Bob was laid to rest, the town folk called him brave. That's intense. So that was that was inspired by all the suicides that were uh-huh. happening with the rotations of um, the, these massive rotations of soldiers. Uh-huh. Um, through the Iraq and Afghanistan war, and um, and then then this you know kind of false you know people thanking them for their service and not right. and not viewing them you know in a in a holistic fashion, you know those, those closing lines are not a judgment on Billy Bob and his bravery, but the right. uh, but on you know people who um, limit you know, their understanding of others in order to justify, you know, larger things that they don't want to think about. Mm-hmm. So when you have veterans in the audience, how do they respond? 
I don't know. I've never had a veteran come up to me and say anything about the piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I really don't know. I've never had any uh, anyone. Um, pe- people have complimented that piece, but otherwise, um, no, I've not. I've never had anyone. Interesting. So nobody said like, you know, I'm a, you know, I was there. This is what I think, or that was my good friend, or you know, I mean, no, nobody's given you a personal. Not as of yet. Not as of yet. You know, I only I only read out so much. You know, if I get a couple of features a year, then you know that's good. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So, you and your poetry and your journals. I want I want people to know how to find you, how to buy work that they can to support the art that you create, you know, that because you're doing both your own art and also promoting other people's art. So, so how do people connect with you and, and what can they buy? <laughs> okay. Well, so with Midnight Lane Boutique, people can just Google that and pull it yeah. up. That's, yeah. that's online site. It's free. I have a uh, editor's page there where I list, you know, online places where my work has been published, print places. It's not a big, huge page, but, you know, it, it has some information about me. Mm-hmm. That's called um, Here's Johnny Longfellow, that is. <laughs> and that, and that, can be, that can be found anywhere that you see my name on site, on the Come Hither page or on the submission guidelines page. You can click on my name to go to that. Um, and, and that name, Johnny Longfellow, folks. That's who you're listening to. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't promote that page too heavily, except for the links on there. And it's hard then, to find, Johnny. It's hard to find, man. You sent me the link to it. I could find it, but when I went to this site, it's like I don't know how to find it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 the Joe influence. I'm I'm kind of trying to sink into the background. That you know, <laughs> Midnight Lane Boutique is for the poets that I publish. It's not, you know, it's. To the degree that it's for me, I'm in the background, you know, just doing okay. my work. I'm, I'm the man behind the curtain, you know. That's right. The Wizard um, of Oz. <laughs> and then as far as things to sell, I have nothing to sell. Everything is free. So, um, you know, I, I don't have a uh, book. I've not really even, a, I've, I've barely made any attempts to get my work published in book form. Just basically, um, I've submitted a good chunk of my work to... Um, online journals and some print mm-hmm. journals. And that's really all that I've done. I like the two ends of writing that I like are the extreme upstream and the extreme downstream. And by that, I mean on the upstream end, I like just writing and working on my poetry and mm-hmm. being in that zone where my left brain and my right brain are fully engaged with what it is that I'm doing at that moment. And on the extreme downstream, it's what I've already discussed before. I like reading my work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, even though I've gotten you know, a, a good chunk of my, my small body of poetry published, I don't get as jazzed by um, seeing my work in print as other poets do. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not been a big thing for me thus far. I may push a little bit harder this year coming up yeah. to maybe get a chat book out or something. Yeah, like I was going to say, you know, because for me, like when I really discovered contemporary poetry in a way that I started going to readings and such, I love being able to have those words on the page. 
after I've heard somebody read their work. And to me, that that is the best, you know, to have that combination of remembering how it sounded to me when that person was speaking their own words and and then being able to to sort of savor it, to look at it more closely. And then sometimes, sometimes like you made a point uh, at one time when you were talking about the word B-A-W-D-Y so that people would know it was that, not, for example, B-O-D-Y. You know, when we hear it, we don't necessarily know. And sometimes there's there's that different meaning. And and I love things like that. So I'm I'm a huge fan of having being able to have books of poetry that I've heard. So I, I, for one, would encourage you to really that idea of, you know, even even the small ones, the, the small chapbooks, as opposed to a larger anthology that might come from, you know, sometimes a, a set of chapbooks that become a, a more full edition. Indeed, I, yeah. I think that's, it's a gift, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the general. I, I, I think that's, the, you know, the the old the old procedures or whatever for you know getting to a full manuscript published is usually you know you start out in journals you go to chat books and then eventually get yourself a full collection mm-hmm. and um you know i've not even tried for the chat book yet i mm-hmm. i have i've only applied to one contest in all these years and that was the able muse um poetry manuscript contest which i you know obviously i didn't win um so you know but i but otherwise i've not really tried Mm -hmm. the um the 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 fees are a little prohibitive that's that's one of the annoying things that i i'm not the only poet that complains about it that you know if you want to get a manuscript published by a press vis-a-vis the various contests are out that are out there Mm -hmm. then the 20 to 25 dollar reading fee for each one can add up rather quickly yeah yeah and you know and i'm i'm struggling right now anyways and so you know Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of off the uh that's off my radar right now and so think oh go ahead about it another way well I i also think about straight out publishing and for me and and as I said several times already, I'm I I think it's essential for people to support art and chapbooks. Like for me, the way that that looks in in my household with the level of income that I have that I spend on things that aren't essentials, I have a lot of small poetry books, mm-hmm. and I have um, I I have people who I write to in on paper. And so I will buy art cards, you know, somebody's photography or other visual art that's been made into a blank card. You know, I, I don't have I don't have the income that that would get me to buy a painting that costs two thousand dollars. Right. But I have, yeah. you know, but I but I do have smaller pieces of art or formats that that are in my budget. And to me. You know, I use the example of fancy coffee drinks because it's actually appalling to me how much money people spend on their espresso drinks, et cetera, in the course of a year and what else you could be doing with that money, whether it's donating to something that's an important cause or sometimes buying art because artists deserve to be paid for their work. <laughs> So think about that, Johnny Longfellow. Think about that. Letting letting people 
can't, you know, be part of supporting the work that you create by being able to buy um, your poetry. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's in the back of my mind. It's just, it's, it's okay. not, it's not been a high priority so far. Right. Like I said, it's, it's, it's more on my mind now. Um, this year coming up, I'm probably gonna yeah. shoot for trying to get a chat book out there. We'll see if it happens yeah. or not. Yeah. And and one qualifier is is that, um, and this is a very small qualifier, mind you. Um, so last year. Um, I had the um, honor and opportunity to read at the Robert Frost Farm up in Derry, New Hampshire, in uh, Robert Frost's barn. Nice. Um, and that's a reading series that runs for about five or six months each year uh-huh. before the place closes down. And so, you know, I, I did end up printing a small chapbook just for that event. Okay. So people there had the opportunity to spend a few bucks. And, Good. You know, and, uh, you know, but that, that was, it was, it was a very, very small chat book. It had like six poems in it, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and it was, it was just a real kind of limited edition thing just to commemorate the event mm-hmm. because, uh, it was the frost farm, you know? All right. That's, yeah, that's cool. So like tell me, we're, we're just getting to the, the wind down part of the hour. We're almost done, but you, um, again, we connected because of a reading where JJ Campbell was going to be. Tell me about your connection to poetry readings. I'm I'm sorry. Tell me uh, about. You my... have a series of poetry readings that you are regularly involved with. Um, yes, um, there is one um, reading series that I'm that I go to fairly religiously, and that's um, the Powwow River Poets Reading Series okay. up in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Um, and um, I had mentioned Rena Espeyat, who's been a mentor of mine. She's a person whom I've sent my work to, and she's pounded on it. I've been very lucky to have a poet as accomplished as her to um, provide me critical and creative feedback. Her and also the poet Alfred Nicole have um, provided me that kind of critical feedback that you know all poets need. And um, Rena founded the Powwow River Poets. They're a gr- I'm, I'm not a member of that workshop, but they're a workshop of largely formal verse poets, poets who write in meter okay. and or in rhyme and meter. Okay. And they have that reading series um, that runs now every other month. And so I've been a regular attendee there. I've been a feature there once, and I read in the open sometimes. So that's mm-hmm. that's the one reading that I go to religiously. Um, right. Other readings in the area I've I've just, I've just never found that same fit. I really like that reading series up there. Okay, cool. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today for this episode of Talk With Me. So, folks, you've been listening to Talk With Me with Johnny Longfellow, who yeah. is joining me from Massachusetts, which actually has big ties to Lawrence, Kansas, but that's not really relevant right now. <laughs> <laughs> Our founding people often came from that direction, of course. And I want to thank uh, Daniel Smith, who produces the show, so people could hear it. So, Johnny Longfellow, any final words for our listeners? No, I just wanted to uh, thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, I was actually anxious yeah. leading up to it, and uh, you know, it, it, it went very casually and nice. At least I feel I really enjoyed talking with you. 
All right, thanks. And we both enjoyed our coffee and got to hear some good poetry from you. I mean, listeners, it's a bonus. So tune in again to other episodes of of Talk With Me and also check out this website, Midnight Lane Boutique. And you'll find, one, you'll be enthralled by the look of it. It is not, in my experience, your your typical poetry journal website. That's going to be a whole nother conversation. So go to it, check it out, and watch for more work from Johnny Longfellow. Thank you, everybody who listened. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you, and so long to our listeners. Bye-bye.